A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We've partnered with the Brain Gym Charity, helping to raise awareness and help find a cure. Thanks to our partnership, we've been able to create a short series of special podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who have been affected by those devastating diagnoses. You can hear those stories and more, including the Williams F1 team's planning director, Richard jones right now on your chosen podcast player the charity work all year round to help develop research and raise awareness and if you're looking to challenge yourself this new year why not sign up to the brain tumor charity's brain power challenge simply choose a challenge that will boost your brain health from meditation to 10k runs to mega sudoku and set your challenge to either silver gold or platinum difficulty level every penny you raise will be spent on the charity's medical research 250 pounds covers the cost of one day of world-class medical research into kinder and better treatments for brain tumors which really does make a difference follow the brain tumor charity on social media to learn more and to sign up boost your brain today to boost other brains tomorrow because a cure can't wait this podcast is brought to you by Rodin Cars. Based in New Zealand, but with a new HQ open in Donington Park in the UK, with the Rodin FZ, you have the keys to experience a whole new level of driving performance. A supercar like no other, giving you the chance to feel pure driving pleasure. Designed for easy maintenance, you could own the F1 lifestyle and strive for that perfect lap time with the Rodin FZ. There's plenty of purchasing options, including after-sale partnership, where your FZ is looked after on and off track by an official formula racing team storage and exclusive track access to rodin's very own circuit in new zealand with rodin and the rodin fz you don't just drive a car you experience the performance of an open wheel high performance supercar for more information on rodin and how you can get involved visit rodin-cars.com hello my name's tim sylvie and today we're joined by a man that hails from watford and did you know harry benjamin that elton john used to be the chairman of watford football club and the Watford Football Club was actually formed as Watford Rovers in 1886. And that's not all. Did you also know that Watford Coliseum is well known for its acoustic qualities and has been regarded as one of the best in Europe and as such has been used to record soundtracks for Lord of the Rings, The Sound of Music and Star Wars. And staying on the musical theme, Simon Le Bon of Duran Duran was born in Watford and linking back to my first fact in the video for Elton John's Step Into Christmas, he holds up his Watford AFC Supporters Club membership card, showing his true love <laughs> for the club. Anyway, enough of my Watford-based ramblings. Shall we introduce today's guest? Oh, I think so. 
So today we're joined by Paul Wallace of Supercars of London. Paul's YouTube channel covers everything to do with supercars as he travels the world reviewing and road tripping. His channel's approaching a million subscribers and he's amassed over 300 million views on his way to hosting one of the biggest car channels in the world. He's driven some of the most important, exotic and impressive cars on the planet and also happens to be into his Formula One, which suits us just fine. He's come a long way since pootling around in his mum's old Ford Focus. We're here to learn about his life career, thoughts and opinions. Paul Wallace of Supercars of London, welcome to the Motorman. Thank you very much. I don't know what has happened to the Wi-Fi connection, but the moment we pressed record, I literally only heard about 20% of what you said. <laughs> we do love the internet. I hope you could hear this, Paul, uh, just about. We are, we're not the most mad podcast at the moment. We're the Watford uh, podcast by the sounds of yeah. it. But home, essentially, for you was, was Watford. Uh, my uncle lives there at the moment. Uh, where are you now? Are you still in Watford or have you moved to pastures new? Um, I am just outside of Watford, so I'm now in St Albans, a stone's throw away from Watford, but I did enjoy listening to the stats. Some of them I knew, some of them I didn't know, and actually, fun fact, I went to school with Simon Le Bon's niece. Wow. No way. So yeah, the connections of, of Watford still exist within Duran Duran, having obviously globetrotted around the world. The Watford's also where, isn't it, the, the Harry Potter things, isn't that in Watford as well, the, um, the experience? Technically, no. Oh. I think <laughs> a, a lot of people say Watford because it's on the map, but it's actually in Leavesden Green. Uh, but that sounds really boring, doesn't it? It sounds very technical. <laughs> but it's not actually... Watford. People yeah, know where you stand then. <laughs> it's like um, there's a hotel called The Grove where... They've hosted a PGA Tour golf mm. tournament. Uh, the England team stay there. I think they've had like the G8, is it the G8 Summit or wherever? Like Barack Obama's been there, Donald Trump's been there. And every single time it comes up on the BBC News, they'll come up with a more creative way of saying not Watford. Even though it's in Watford, they're like embarrassed to say Watford. So they'll be like, <laughs> Harford shit. North London. London. <laughs> anyway, but Watford. <laughs> North, North London, yeah, absolutely always go to, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, go on then. Let's um let's take it back to uh to the start and, and those early days. You know, what was life like for you, you know, growing up living in Watford? When, you know, were you obviously surrounded by cars or were you just having an interest in it? Where did it come from? Um my my love for cars came from Formula One. So there's been like this huge, weird full circle. Formula One developed from my passion for planes, aeroplanes, when I was about eight, nine years old, um, which then obviously developed into Formula One. My parents obviously looking for any sort of passion or hobby that they can throw Christmas presents or birthday presents at. As soon as I paid interest into cars, that was it. Every Christmas and birthday, it was car books car videos, model cars. My um, tripod now is actually being sat on a on a box of a McLaren P1 model car. So <laughs> that passion has lived through 15, 20 years or so. Um, but I was never really surrounded by like flash cars um, or petrol heads. So it really developed from within rather than like a, an uncle that had like a nice car or was a petrol head. Like my dad wasn't really a petrol head. My mum certainly wasn't. They drove a, a Volvo and a Vauxhall Astra. Um, and Proper North it, London. Nothing wrong with <laughs> Exactly. There's nothing wrong with a Volvo. <laughs> um, and it was when I went to London with my dad for an art project that I discovered the the shall we say the the rich and glitz and glam of Knightsbridge, Mayfair, um, Kensington, and seeing cars in the flesh rather than in a magazine or on Top Gear is where everything ignited inside to be like I need to capture this so I can relive it and I want to do it more and more and more and so that's really where that initial period of my YouTube channel and I suppose career journey as such started was getting a buzz out of seeing cars in the flesh and the raw metal, hearing them and almost feeling them sometimes when they were echoing off the walls and capturing that content so that I could relive it. Yeah. Little did I know that it was then going to 
break into what it's become where I now share everything that I do with, uh, with a, a bunch of other petrol heads online. And, and, and you started around October 2008 in terms of putting content onto YouTube. And at that time, like many YouTubers of the time, you were shooting cars without you in the frame. It was just you shooting a car in Knightsbridge or whatever, pulling away and all, all great. When did you get to that point where you thought, I'm going to turn the camera on myself and start actually talking? So the content actually started before October 2008. That was when Supercars of London started. Um, but I had a channel previous to that, which was still uploaded car content. Um, but it was actually uh, Tim Burton, Shmi 150, who advised me to turn the camera around and, and give my story, give my perspective on going into London. So for about seven Seven years, maybe? No, 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 less, less. Maybe four, four or five years I filmed. It was just the car in the frame. I was filming it and hiding behind the camera. And one summer, whether it's 2009 or 10, um, it was it was Tim who said, look, I'm doing this and it's working. Yeah. Like, you, need, you, should do, you should do it too. And I went from taking six years to get 100,000 subscribers where I was focusing on just the car. And it took me two more months to hit 200,000 subscribers because in that time I had turned the camera around and started to share my story, reveal my identity and kind of give a bit more personality to the videos. Yeah. So the growth just went... How, how do you look at it? Now, how do you look at the YouTube landscape now? You know, because I suppose when you were first starting it, it you know, people were just beginning to, to tap into that market of, you know, vlogging, turning the camera around. Now it often seems like it's probably a bit of a oversaturated place and you've got to play with the algorithm and hope that YouTube favors you. How do you find it now? Um, it's fundamentally a maths equation to work out what the algorithm's doing on that day. Um, when I started, there was, no, there was no need to worry about how many views you were going to get, how much money you were going to earn. You did it, and I did it, because I loved it. And I've always said, the moment I stop enjoying it is the moment I'd walk away and try and do something else or try and find another avenue. Obviously, still within cars, because that's just embedded in me. Um, it's such a different space now. I don't quite get as excited as I used to going into London and trying to hunt down supercars because Instagram has already revealed where all of the cars are. So there's no real excitement or surprise that you're going to get going into London. I used to love walking around a corner and seeing a Ferrari F50 parked up, street parked, going, oh my God. Whereas now you see it on Instagram, you see the exact location, the car, everything, and just make your way there. So it's kind of like the treasure hunt's already been revealed. So that kind of level of excitement has completely dropped off for me. I love going into London and seeing the cars, but that level of excitement of not knowing what you're going to see has gone. Um, and in general, the space, there's good and bad parts to it because the good part is there's more people doing it. So all of my friends that have YouTube channels we can meet up, we can create some cool content together, we can go on road trips and, and be these idiots driving cool cars and just having a camera with us and almost bringing our audience alongside with us in the passenger seat. And then the bad side of it is now we're kind of realizing, well, we're all filming fundamentally the same thing. And people have a limited time to consume content in one evening. So maybe four or five years ago, people were able to watch three or four YouTube channels and that was basically us on the road trip. Whereas now there's 25 YouTube channels and people are splitting their attention between all of these channels. So all of a sudden, um, there's a lot more competition. So you kind of have to find those unique angles of how can you make your video that little bit more exciting? How can you make that video a little bit more enticing for the audience? And then all of a sudden, your competitors are your mates. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, 
ah, oh, what do you do now? How, 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 how does that work? Because like, obviously these are your friends. People like Sam from Seen Through Glass and James, you know, the, these are friends of yours. But and, they, and some of them have started YouTube after you. Some have started it at a similar sort of time. Like James came onto it relatively late and has done, done brilliantly well. And you've got Archie Hamilton and, and, and others. Does it... Is it difficult? Does it ever get tricky? Or do you ever get frustrated that that space is so saturated with people who you genuinely get along with? Uh, no, well, I always said that when I was, I was probably at 75, 80,000 subscribers, there was basically me and Tim, that was it. We were the only two guys in London that had a large audience in comparison to everyone else. And I always said I would rather have a group of people come up with me so that we can all kind of share the same experiences. Yeah. And that there have been the, the pros have massively outweighed the cons because I'm not a competitive person when it comes to YouTube. Stick me on a football pitch or a tennis court, I'm a completely different person. When it comes to YouTube, I would rather, if there was 100,000 views to be shared... I wouldn't want to have 100,000 views to myself and not be mates with anyone else because I've basically trodden on everyone to get to the top. I would rather share those views with everyone else because yeah. I'm not that fussed about having 10 million subscribers. I'd rather have fun whilst I do it and still love and enjoy what I do. Um, there have been times on press trips. Press trips are the ones where you're filming the same cars <laughs> on the same roads with the same people that all have YouTube channels, how do you get a different angle where we've actually sat down at the dinner the night before and said, right, what are you filming? What are you filming? What are you filming? And then when are you uploading? When are you uploading? When are you uploading? To try and give ourselves an even playing field and then leaving it down to the audience to then choose who they watch. And everyone's got their favorite. So yeah. it really is like, it, I would much rather have an even playing field where all of my mates are happy and doing the same thing so that when we do get the opportunity of going on a road trip, there's no politics. There's no one that I don't want to film with him because of this or I don't want to film with him because he stuck me over. With so I'm, I'm much more of a, hey, let's, let's all have fun. Yeah. And if we can grow at the same time and be successful. There, there was, I saw a video. No backstabbing um, involved there. I, I saw a video not, not that long ago with um, JWW and I think, and uh, is it TGE? Is that how he calls himself? Tom. And, and, yes. and it was a, it, it was like a bury the hatchet kind of video. Like we haven't seen eye to eye. We have, you know, not come to blows, but we, we've had our moments and, and we're going to use this video to bury the hatchet. Um, and whether that is true or not, you know, or it's just for the public consumption, you never know. But I suppose there are there are individuals out there that are going to do things differently, perhaps in a more ruthless fashion in order to get those views and get that income. Yeah, I, I think the nature of when I started being so early into the YouTube scene and doing it for a bit of a laugh, really, and being lucky enough to evolve it to the point where it's got to today my motive for having a YouTube channel and having a social media, like this is a, a result of something that I didn't really see happening or I didn't plan on having a big audience. I didn't plan on this being my career where there is now a lot more people in this space that got into it to make it a career. And at that point, when you're in the space or getting into the space to make it a career, you have to make it about um, the money. You have to make it about profits. You have to make it about making as much money as possible. There have been so many times where we uh, or we've hit, I've heard stories from people that have, have trodden on someone else to get a gig, to get a brand deal, to get a little bit extra money. Um, and it was one of the reasons at one point, this is going into like the commercialized aspect of, of YouTube, but um, there was an agency that used to represent pretty much the entire automotive space on YouTube to brands. So they would go out to the likes of Shell, to the likes of Michelin and pitch us as automotive content creators to them to have sponsorship opportunities with these brands. And at one point, they had monopolized it so that the entire automotive content creating world in the UK was 
was being was under this one agency and myself and Sam from Seeing Through Glass kind of recognized all of a sudden we're being pitched against each other for commercial work and we didn't like that ethos we didn't like that culture so we both left on the same day we decided and we took ourselves out of the situation because we never wanted to get to let the business element and the money-making element um, ruin the relationships that we had with everyone. So we stepped away, which then obviously left a few of the other guys, uh, Archie, Seb, Tim, JWW, with this one agency. And then we went off and did our own thing. So it kind of relieved a little bit of the stress and attention because you could see that the politics were coming in to be like, well, I got more views than you last month, so I should be charging this much. And there was all of this like bickering going on on the politics. And we both said, look, it's better that some of us remove ourselves from that situation so that we can continue to, to be mates and then almost have a secondary business um, activity going on. Because that is, that is an element now to YouTube. It's not all about content creation. It's also about connecting with the right brands that can level up your content and give you that, um, I don't know, like that edge on, on, on some things. And I've always looked at brand deals and collaborations with, with partners and sponsors as they're able, they're, they're enabling me to live out my wildest creative dreams. I always have a list of crazy ideas that I know I can't fund or uh, expense myself, myself. But the moment someone like Michelin comes in and says, hey, we've got this much money, like, let's do something really cool. I'll be like, straight to the video list. Let's do something completely nuts. So um, it is an element to it that there was times where you're like, oh my God, like all of a sudden I start to hate you. <laughs> <laughs> There, there is so much more, isn't there, than, than meets the eye than just clicking onto your YouTube channel and watching the videos. That's the end result. But there is so much more that's gone into it that people don't see. So it's great that you highlighted all the sort of goings on and the builds up to it, the good and the bad. But I suppose the ultimate question is, when did you actually buy your first supercar? Well, I had, I basically realized it was just after university so it's 2013 i was driving around in a 2006 voxel astra 1.6 the two-door one so it had like it was it was the car that voxel had created as a concept and then they kind of just built the concept and i remember <laughs> top gear highlighting it going voxel have actually just gone and built a concept car and i always like i always i always love that car and um I realized that all of my content was filmed in the summer and then I reaped the rewards of that content by getting the ad money in around October, November, December time. So coming into Christmas when people were at home, clicking on the videos, it wasn't a 12-month sustainable business. So I realized if I had a car on my driveway, I could walk out the front door, jump in, and have content on my lap every single day that was going to be able to sustain a higher level of income and kind of develop and evolve the business and also give people an insight into the world of owning a supercar or a sports car that three or four years ago I would have loved to have watched because I was filming these Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Bugattis as well. And there was an air of mystery about who was driving them how did they get the money to afford those cars? What do they do day to day? And that's kind of what I wanted to try and bring to my audience. So I couldn't afford one. I didn't have the money in the bank. So I went out, I spoke to automotive local businesses and sold a, 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 a what's the word? A consultancy um, service to them saying, I can help run your social media. I can post content on your pages and then retweet it on mine and share it on mine so that you get my audience. I can help build an audience for you and you pay me per month to do that. So then I started to build like a monthly income and um, was able to build a deposit 
and then turned that into financing an Audi R8. So I ran the my first supercar series on YouTube as a little bit like, I'm going out there, buy my first supercar, but I need your help. What do you think? And bringing the audience in on the journey as well and providing that interactive experience that was, I suppose, motivational and aspirational, but at the same time, I was kind of living my own dream. I ended up buying the R8 in 2013. I got rid of the Vauxhall Astra and bought the R8 without driving it because I was 23 or 20, I was 23 at the time. And the guy who was selling it was like, you're not driving this car. Like I turned up in the Vauxhall Astra. I had a look around it. This guy thought I was a tire kicker. Um, but I had, I had all of the, the financials to back it up so that I was, I basically had had the finance pre-approved. So I almost had the money there ready to go. So I basically, um, had to buy the car blind, which was terrifying. So the, the, the first time I drove the car was I paid the money and the car was mine. And the weight on my shoulders of the risk that I'd just taken to basically, um, yeah, to go from basically spending £200 a year on a, on, a, on a new camera to then committing to spending nine, ten grand over a year on this car, I was like, this has to work. There's, there's no two ways about it. Like, I've got to make this work. It's very much a business sort of philosophy that you've got to take with YouTube. And, and you talk about it there, you know, making this investment in the car for the betterment of your channel. What, what have you learned about the way you operate as a business person to make this work? Like, do you have certain philosophies and ways of doing things or things that you've learned? Is there stuff that you do personally, whether it's, you know, healthy body, healthy mind, being efficient with your time and so on? What what makes you the businessman that you have become, do you think? That is, that's a good question. And I think up until, up until three or four years ago, I probably wouldn't even class myself as like someone in business or like an entrepreneur as someone might label a content creator slash YouTuber because... I rolled with every single day. I literally got out of bed and kind of did whatever I felt was right. I never really felt like I needed to make a decision here or there. Um, everything just rolled with the punches. And I think that the, the one thing that I picked up on very early on when I came out of university was I spoke to a guy who gave me some really sound advice. He basically said, focus on one thing and make it work rather than try and have three or four things at the beginning and trying to split your time and attention between those four things. He said, focus on one thing and make that work and then be the hardest, hardest working person that you know. And he was like, go through your phone book and make sure that you're the hardest working person in your phone book and you'll, and you'll get somewhere. And that was really the advice that I got. I must have been 22, 23. And I took that with me to say, right, I'm not going to stop. I'm only going to go to bed when I feel tired. And I'm just going to do what feels good for me, but focusing on YouTube. And everything else that comes off that is like a branch. And all of a sudden, you can make uh, a tree with all sorts of opportunities on it. So... I probably took that advice. And also there were a lot of people, especially during the school years, during the early university years, that basically told me I was never going to own a supercar. I was never going to own a Lamborghini by 25. So I had these goals and people telling me I couldn't do it that motivated me to prove them wrong. And at one point I was on the DVLA website looking at plates I was like working out what number plate I could get that says, I told you so. <laughs> so that when I got my Lamborghini before 25, 
I could put that plate on and just be like driving around, be like, yeah, I told you, like you said I couldn't do it. <laughs> you, might, you might have regretted that number plate a few years down the line. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> I was, that was a very imma- immature brain of mine. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, how, how, how amazing though to, to have gone through all of that and come out the other side of it and, and be, be so successful. With the, that side of success, I suppose though, comes uh, a lot of, fame, a lot of clout, you have a lot of subscribers, people who follow you on Instagram, who like to interact with you. How have you dealt with that side of things? Is it something that really plays on your mind a lot? Or is it is it quite a nice addition? Or are they occasionally, you know, we live in this world of social media now where people think they sort of know you and, and can sort of say whatever they like, perhaps unfiltered? Um, I think for the majority of the time, and especially the stuff that I've experienced, um, it's been it's been an amazing addition. It's not something that I've asked for. I've always been quite a shy person with new people, um, and it's something that starting my YouTube channel such a long time ago, where YouTube and social media itself was in such its infancy that there was no real end goal of I want to be famous. Whereas now people start a TikTok account or they start an Instagram and they're desperate for that fame and that attention. It was really a byproduct of doing something that I loved. So I always felt like this passion of mine, being able to share that with other people was such an amazing experience to have because I would go through the comments and see someone be like, I would only dream to see a Ferrari 458 Italia in my country. And you're thinking, oh my God, like I've just spent three hours in London seeing eight of them and bringing that content to a platform that enables people to just see one on their TV screen because they're never going to see one in their life in their hometown was this like, oh my God, like I'm basically bringing Top Gear to life with what I'm doing and kind of filming content that I could only dream of seeing and filming, but I've got access to it because I'm going into London. Um, That in itself, going to car meets or being out and about and bumping into subscribers and and viewers of the channel, everyone is like super friendly and so nice to be able to have a conversation with. Because at the end of the day, I'm a car guy and so are the people that are watching my videos. So bumping into someone in the street and them talking about my latest video, oh, what was it like driving the McLaren Speedtail? Or, oh my God, I saw your video of you drifting in the 812 Superfast in Italy. Like, tell me about it. And connecting with people like that is an amazing byproduct to having a YouTube channel where I basically get to live my dream every single day. Um, But I identified pretty quickly and pretty early on that YouTube have created a monster in the, in the sense that it's completely uncontrollable in the sense that there's so many people there. There's so many differing opinions and all of a sudden take your experiences from primary or secondary school. When you've got differing personalities that clash, you can have fights break out. You can see bullying firsthand. Then add the most ignitable fuel in the sense of like giving people a platform and the ability to share their personality with the world, all of a sudden you've got like this horrendous cycle of people bickering and arguing. And there is a really dark side to social media and the bigger your audience, uh, the more that can have an effect on people. Um, So it's something over the last two to three years that I've been very wary of. Um, And it's also come around the same sort of time that, I've really burnt out every single year working so hard and waking up and going, right, what am I filming today? How am I filming it? Let's go. Not stopping to have some time to myself to relax, to recoup, to regenerate and come up with more creative ideas. Um, In some creative industries, you have that ability. If you look at music, for example, artists will record an album over maybe two years, Mm -hmm. put that album out, And then they'll almost disappear and they'll have time to reflect. They'll have time to relax. They might go on tour, but. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Fundamentally, there is a period where you're able to stop what you're doing and kind of reflect on what you've done and then move on to the next project. And with YouTube and the way that that algorithm works. If you're not online every hour of the day, you might get kicked off the algorithm. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, Rodin Cars. Rodin are a bespoke formula-style supercar manufacturer based in New Zealand. With their vehicle offering, this is the only place where you can truly live the F1 lifestyle. With the easy-to-run, easy to maintain and even easier to drive Rodin FZ, you can live the dream of hunting down those final tenths of lap time whilst being fully supported by the team at Rodin who will provide you with after-sale care, storage options, exclusive use of their incredible track in New Zealand and courtesy of Formula Racing Team High Tech Grand Prix will run, set up and maintain your vehicle on and off the track. The Rodin FZ is a vehicle like no other. Perfect for any true car aficionado in search for that elite performance to find out more head to rodin-cars.com you've got to feed the beast haven't you that's what it is you do you do have to feed the beast and does it if you're not feeding the beast i mean if you take the pandemic for example where you're stuck inside for long periods of time and not getting in your car and filming what how does that affect a youtuber's life It, it it definitely it definitely has affected the way that i operate I basically reduced my output of content by about 80%. And that was a choice of mine. And what has happened in return is obviously you can go onto my YouTube channel, you can go onto my Instagram, you can see that I have massively fallen off the YouTube algorithm, but I'm happy with that because I'm keeping sane. Like (laughs) I could sit on my sofa and that's kind of what I did for the first two months of that really harsh initial lockdown. Um, I was, I was freaking out. I was like, what can I do? How can I stay productive? How can I keep putting content out? But at the same time, I was aware that I had, um, an audience and I had, um, people that looked to my content and I'd seen it firsthand over the years, driving an R8, driving a Lamborghini and, and being in communication with my audience. I could see that there were uh, people that looked to my channel and what I did as, as inspiration to be like, oh, this guy's done it. He's not come from a wealthy background yet. He's driving a Lamborghini. He's living his dream. I didn't want to be seen as one of those guys that was going out, breaking the rules of lockdown just for the sake of content. And there were people on YouTube that did that. Um, <laughs> and I felt really strongly about it. I wanted to stay inside, show people that I was staying inside um, because it was, I mean, it was a global pandemic. I mean, like you kind of have to do what, do what you can to survive. But at the same time, all of my content was based on driving and going places and road trips, international travel. And um, I couldn't do that. And I think the hardest thing over the last two years for me has been the creative struggle in terms of the restrictions that we've had. um, I've basically been confined to one linear content style, which is visit a car dealership, take the keys to a car and go for a drive. But there's only so many times you can do that before it starts getting a little bit monotonous. And as cool as it is taking the keys to something like a Honda NSX that I did during lockdown last year, like an amazing experience, such a cool car to drive. Um, But you kind of end up 
this is going to sound nuts, but you end up like resenting your creative, your narrative for that story because the videos all blend into one. You can do it on autopilot and I'm never out of my comfort zone, which is where people strive and where people thrive is getting outside of your comfort zone and kind of finding your feet and, and fluffing your way through a trial and error process. That's where you start seeing the best of yourself. And like during the lockdown, with the, the redu- reduction of content output, but also that really monotonous angle on, hey, I'm down here and I'm going to go and drive this car now, um, it did start to wear thin. And it does start to wear thin, but hopefully this year will be different. <laughs> Fingers crossed, knock on wood, everything going is uh, it's going to be better. Um, let's go back to obviously we're sort of discovering the the makings of you and the channel. Just to touch on cars in general as well. You're a Lambo lover, right? You that sort of well, you tend to go for a Lambo. What is it about a Lamborghini? And perhaps on the flip side, what is it about a Ferrari <laughs> that those who watch your channel will know you're not always quite so keen on? <laughs> oh, but there's, so there's, there's two very different answers, actually, between Lamborghini and Ferrari. Lamborghini always provided me with the most exciting content in London. They were these loud, brash mm. sledgehammers, normally driven by rock stars, tattooed, crazy guys that gave me the best content and gave me the biggest thrill and excitement. So going to London, I was always counting how many Lamborghinis had I seen that day and that constituted whether that was a good day or not. So Lambos for me have always been like a passion of mine and I loved them way before I even thought about what they were like to drive. And I remember speaking to a guy, he was a supercar owner in London, he drove a Porsche Carrera GT but he also had a Murcielago Roadster. And he said to me, um, I buy cars based on what they look like and what they sound like. I don't care what they drive like. And now looking back, I was like, yeah, obviously. Like you had like (laughs) (laughs) those two cars and you were driving through central London in them. Um, And it really is like a nuts thing to look back on some of the content that I filmed, seeing how young I was and how naive I was in the world of like this supercar world to then being able to have experienced the ownership of uh, Lamborghinis. Um, They're not the best cars to drive. There are far better cars out there that are more enjoyable, more relaxing to drive. But there isn't a car out there that will make my back sweat, my hands stand on end, sometimes put a tear in my eye, not ear, um, and put a massive smile on my face. There are some Ferraris that do that. I actually have more of a problem with the, the culture of the business of Ferrari. So the way they treat their customers and the way they push their customers to get bumped up the list Um, I worked for HRO in Ferrari and Maserati. So I kind of got a glimpse of it there of, oh, if you want a 458, but you want it in 18 months, if you want to get bumped up the list, how about you go and order a Ferrari California now? No one that walked into that Ferrari dealership wanted to buy a Ferrari California, but they all had them with maximum spec because it bumped them up the list for the 458. So it was just like this milking exercise for Ferrari that over the years... I've been exposed to like far more than I have ever wanted to, which kind of like removed a little bit of the magic of Ferrari. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong, their cars are phenomenal, especially the ones that have like V12s, um, the likes of like V12 Lusso, A12, F12. Those cars, like I would love to own and experience ownership of a Ferrari, but I always feel like the way that Ferrari from Italy influenced the dealers. And then the customers kind of puts me off that experience. But that's come, that's come after like my naivety, my naivety of, of filming in London and just seeing these Ferraris and thinking that they're really, really cool. And then over time experiencing and hearing stories of the way that they treat customers, the way they put customers down the list, the way they bump customers up the list, the way they just take money off everyone. And they kind of have like this sort of mafioso kind of style to the way they operate their business, um, which I don't tend to agree with. 
Yeah, all the he's... Ferrari California owners are going to be out. <laughs> you mean right now? Just <laughs> I just, I, I'm they're, gonna, gonna uh, they're the worst Ferrari. Like, when well, they were supposed to be a Maserati. Like, that's the, <laughs> that's like the biggest. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Let's uh, let's turn our attention to, oh, to Formula One. Um, Paul, what did you make of the, the 2021 Formula One season? And more importantly, did the right man win out in the end? Oh, firstly, the, 20, the 2021 season was like, I could re-watch every single race, like minute by minute. I don't, I, I wouldn't even want to watch the highlights that's how nuts the season was. Every single race that happened, I sat down with Sam and we said, how, how does the next race get better than that one? And it did. Every single race was an entertaining spectacle where you then go onto social media just to see how people reacted to it. You'd want to go and look at the Twitter threads. You want to go on Instagram and see what people thought of it. You'd wait until the post-race interview so that you could hear what the drivers, the, the constructors w- would make of what had happened on track. Um, I'm a massive Lewis fan. So the Abu Dhabi situation is still a little bit of a, a sore topic. But at the end of the day... Max was the better driver over the season. He was, he was the more consistent driver. He made less mistakes. In some situations, he had a slower car than Lewis. In other situations, he had a faster car than Lewis. Um, but the one thing that I was a little bit disappointed by is anything can happen in sport. Anything can happen. You can go back to the, was it the 1999 Champions League final? when Manchester United scored two goals in the last minute against Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich fans will say they deserved that win and they deserved to win the Champions League, but there were those two minutes of extra time and Man United scored two goals in it. That's sport, that's life. So the fact that Lewis dominated the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and made everything look like he was going to win the World Championship off the back of Brazil, Qatar and Saudi, where they were all must-win races for him, and he did exactly that, he couldn't have done any more. And then for it to be manipulated in the way that we got to see Max and Lewis fight for that final lap, there was no way that Lewis was going to win. And I think the race directors knew that. Everyone knew that. Um, So I kind of still feel like you kind of have to let something play out you shouldn't try and force a situation and I think on the day Lewis was the better driver I think Max Verstappen fans will agree that on the day Lewis deserved to win that race and I think if it wasn't a title deciding race we would have never have got the decisions that we got with the race director but because it was that deciding factor um, they wanted to put Lewis and Max together to try and create a spectacle but there was only ever going to be one winner I think a, a lots of people w- would agree with you on that. The, the only thing I'll, I'll say, because I've had so many people, uh, mess- I even know that my mate of mine messaged me yesterday being like, he just said, I just got it up now. I just watched the final lap of Abu Dhabi for the, uh, about the 700th time. It still nearly makes me cry every time. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's such, it's one of those profound moments in, of sport that will live on for, for the ages. You know, it is proper Prost Senna kind of stuff. You know, we will mm. be about this in 20, 30, 40 years time. But I suppose the only thing I would say is that, you know, a championship is won over a season as well. And and arguably Max has has proven that he perhaps was the better driver, had the better car, had some of the better luck, also had some of the less better luck as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think I I would agree with you that, you know, the way things played out, you know, Hamilton was absolutely robbed of a win. I wouldn't necessarily say he was robbed of a championship. He was better on that day for sure. The only thing I take issue with right is that obviously <laughs> Michael Massey a lot of people have a lot of things to say about Michael Massey and having you know we had um Anthony Davidson on on this very podcast the day after Sunday in Abu Dhabi and oh, wow. I, don't know Mike, I don't know Michael Massey I know him through the TV like a lot of people he actually does know him and he says no he's one of the nicest people going he's he's very well respected he, he, he took he was he was taught by the very best you know Charlie Whiting and he's got a lot to deal with 
the the I, I feel like the word manipulated is is a very loaded word, and I know a lot of people have their opinions on on the FIA and how they do things. But even if my what I say is even if the because the main crux of the issue, right, is the lapped cars were allowed. Only some of the lapped cars were allowed to get out of the way. The ones in between Hamilton and Verstappen. Yeah. But even if they weren't taken out of the equation, they still would have had to have get gotten out of the way almost immediately. Which, yes, would would have still hold, held up um, Verstappen. But they would have had to get out of the way. And Verstappen being Verstappen, yes, he may well not have done the uh, overtaking maneuver in that particular corner which, which ended up winning in the championship but he would have tried something in the last few corners of that lap anyway he would have been there I think and he either would have tried something ridiculous and gotten away with it and won the championship or he would have tried something ridiculous and biffed Hamilton off into the wall <laughs> and we'd be talking about something totally different so I yeah. still think that whatever the outcome was it was going to be controversial because of the season we've had it's just been it was an epic season I don't think it, I, I it was always going to end in some form of tears I think. <laughs> and that's what I try that's what I try and convey to people but of course a lot of people are just are not happy with the situation and, and it, it will go on it, people will be talking about I think Hamilton's silence as well is is something very palpable. I think he's saying a lot by not saying anything, isn't he? Yeah, I I, I think you're right, and I, I I completely agree with everything that you're saying. Um, I, I, it's hard I, though when you're a Hamilton fan, it's hard to, to either it, fan. It's hard. It, it is. It is. I think um, I've I've fully I said this throughout the season that I kind of felt like Lewis had lost a little bit of his magic, whether that being qualifying or during the race. And I was seeing Max evolve into a world championship driver. There were so many times during that season that he drove like a world champion and there was nothing that Lewis or Mercedes could throw at Red Bull to stop Max Verstappen because he was just a powertrain and he didn't have the luck. So I look at Abu Dhabi and the way that he won and then everything that happened after it to be like Max won't even care what happened in Abu Dhabi because he will look at the entire season and he deserved it. He deserved it. The one thing that I would have loved to have seen though is for I don't really care about what happened now. At the time, obviously, I was fuming and shouting at the TV and my heart <laughs> ran through the roof. But what I would have also loved to have seen was Signs was also on fresh tyres. So if yeah. you had removed the drivers between Verstappen and Sainz, what would have happened between those three if that Max or Lewis had to defend against Sainz as well? Mm. Ultimately, what a lot was uh, overlooked at was it really didn't help any of the drivers from basically behind Verstappen. <laughs> no. They all got screwed over, but nobody cared about them. I'm no. actually this type that title fight was going on. I was looking at the timing screen because Sunoda was making his way up the the bloody yeah yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Sunoda, go on, yeah. Go on. Yeah. I'm screaming for him, but as as you can see, it, we can talk about this all bloody day. But we've still only got a few more minutes uh, left with you, Paul. So uh, we want to skip forward to a few quick fire questions before our final three, awesome. um, because it's so fascinating chatting with you. Um, what are you rubbish at? Absolutely awful at. Hmm. What have I? Um. Do you know what? I think over the last five years or so. I have tried so hard to stick to what I know. I don't know whether I'm trying to think of something that I've tried, something that I've tried recently. Are you uh, are you uh, very musical instruments at all, or um, I mean, or I'm, like I'm terrible at singing. Like that's one thing that I think if I could be reborn, the one talent I would have is I'd love. I would love to be able to sing. Um, but then again, like. I've been in situations where being a singer is actually really slightly awkward because I was at a dinner where it's someone's birthday and we had uh, an actual like professional singer, like an actual artist. Um, at the, and I was just watching him because everyone was watching him because he can sing. So like we were like, well, go on and sing Happy Birthday properly. Oh, I've, no. I've, I've, like, I've, ne I've never heard Happy Birthday in tune. <laughs> So there are definitely there are definitely pros and cons to to having a good voice, but I love I love music. So yeah, I would say I love music, but I'm completely useless at um, instruments or st or holding a note or like I'm a good I'm a good shower singer. But um, oh, aren't, we, aren't we all? <laughs> well, let's uh, let's flip that on its head. Then have you have you got any particular hidden talents that the public might not know about you? 
Um, hidden talents. So I, I played football up to a relatively high standard up until the ages of 16, 17. Um, we had a really strong, uh, really strong school team. A few of the guys went on and, and played professional football now. So we, um, I don't know where they ended up, but there was a couple of Tottenham players, QPR player. I think one of them plays for Derby now, um, which is great to see those guys like sticking with that and, and absolutely smashing it and earning a load of money. <laughs> um, and I played and I played tennis. Probably I played tennis probably to a higher standard than I played football, but I I much preferred football to play. Um, but at one point I was probably, um, top 10 tennis county player, which is probably like a hidden talent that I wouldn't really be able to share online. Every now and again, I hint football or tennis. There's a couple of videos out there that have football or tennis in that then all of a sudden the comments go on fire and they're like, oh my God, I never knew you could play tennis. So I never knew you could play football, which is always fun. Uh, I we've, was we've got absolutely the... god-awful at all football. Oh, yeah. But you're too tall for football, Harry. <laughs> if you de- you can't tell because Harry's sat <laughs> down, but, but Harry is about seven foot eight. He's enormous and he's got size 16 feet, which are not really made for delicate twinkle tennis <laughs> football. Shock, shock horror, they just stuck me in goal. So <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like you're a ready-made basketball player. Yeah, oh, that's the one thing I wish my... I, I played it all at school. One thing I wish they'd done is they forced me to do basketball. We yeah. occasionally did it when it was like the summer and you could like have a fun week or whatever and uh, yeah, play yeah. whatever you wanted. But I was, I was surprisingly fairly good at it. Um, before we move on, I think Tim was getting to this, before we move on to our, um, our final three questions, which we asked to all of our guests, one last one for you. Uh, and looking ahead to this year, obviously uh, it's a new year, 2022. What does the future hold for, for you and, and of course your YouTube channel? Oh, uh, it's going to be... Definitely, it's going to, I'll call it a year to remember for multiple reasons, multiple reasons. Um, firstly, this is the first year that I've ever started a year without owning a car. I literally don't own a car. I've, I've sold everything. Um, so it's an exciting in terms of like, there's a blank canvas. I can literally go in any direction that I want. Sometimes I'm tied into a a finance agreement on like the Murcielago for let, for example. And then there's like this one car that I really want to buy that I just know is like a stretch too far. Um, so to actually start the year really with like a fresh clean slate is quite exciting. Um, so from a, from a business point of view, um, there's going to be some awesome trips, some road trips. I'm hoping to spend a lot of time down in the South of France because like the content down there is amazing. Um, this year, uh, sorry, this month, I'm basically in full self-isolation mode because I'm hoping to go out to California. So I need to te- wow. continue to test negative until the flight. And then I can obviously go out there and, and meet up with all of the guys out there that over the last two years I've um, obviously been in contact with and been keeping up to date with, but um, have, have obviously struggled to collaborate and film with. So I'm looking forward to going out to LA and that ca- the car scene out there is nuts. Um, so a lot to look forward to from a YouTube perspective, but then also um, I'm getting married this year, so that's like oh, nuts from a from a personal from a personal point of view, like a, a really exciting thing to look forward to and be planning. So yeah, a lot to look forward to this year. Oh, massive congrats on that! Thank well. you very much. Thank you. And our final three, which we bring to all of our guests, which are brought to you by Roden Cars. Number one, Paul, what's got you excited at this very moment? Do you know what? Coming from a petrol head that loves screaming V12s, in a weird way, the rate in which EVs are developing is quite exciting. Mm, interesting. Which, so you're not, you're not too averse to the whole electric might be the future? Not, not at all. Not at all. I don't think, I don't think they are going to be like the permanent future. I think we'll come up with... Um, some 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 cool stuff especially like the synthetic fuels is, is exciting but i think just the rate in which electric cars are developing like the early cars were completely useless and the one thing that's still not quite there is the price point i think a lot of them are still really expensive for what they fundamentally are and what you get out of them 
But I recently experienced the new Hyundai Ioniq 5 and also the Ford Mustang Mach-E. I think in a couple of weeks' time, I'm driving the Mustang Mach-E GT. Um, and they're just like awesome tech toys. And I'm not adverse to daily driving one. They're never going to replace a V12, V10, or a V8. But I definitely think there's a place for them. Um, and I just think the rate of development and what the likes of Elon Musk's doing and those guys, I just feel like in the next two to three years, we're going to look back on 2021, 2022 and be like, oh my God, like this, this three-year period has just had the most insane acceleration of tech. Yeah, it, I, I really want an electric car just for even just for short journeys, you know, for, for local journeys, because that seems what at the moment, that seems what they're absolutely brilliant for. They can, of yeah. course, they can do long haul journeys, but you've just got to be a bit more, you've got to be savvy with it and you've got to be yeah. more mindful, haven't you? But yeah. it's a different, uh, you know, in, in your standard car, you've got to fill up and you've got to make sure you've got your air in your tires and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's just it's changing your mindset, isn't it, a little bit to, to an electric car. You've got to be able to, to get on board with it. Um, that's being said, though, second question, what is your ultimate three-car garage? Ooh, three-car garage, instantly, Bugatti Chiron. Um, it's straight in there because, and that's probably the car that I would keep forever. I feel like it will be a timeless car. Um, and it's got everything. You've got the performance and you've got the comfort. You don't need to be revving it down the road to, to get the attention. I think that car is, is such an iconic car and has so much road presence. And I've experienced it from the passenger seat. It's nuts. I've not driven one. I'd love to drive one. But Bugatti Chiron, um, I would probably then go full-on straight pipe to Ventador SVJ because that would just that would just put a smile on my face and I could go and relieve stress. It's like those stress balls that you just like grip. And I think that car would probably give me the release that I need. Um, and then I would probably go down the route of a Rolls-Royce Ghost or a Bentley Flying Spur that just had that effortless comfort where you could just drive and drive and drive if I needed to go down to the south of Italy, for whatever reason, I could literally get in a Rolls-Royce Ghost and do it on one on one stint and not really have to feel tired. Or It's just the ultimate luxury. So I think, yeah, Bugatti Show, a Rolls-Royce Ghost and a straight parked SVJ. Oh, well, surely, though, if you're in a Rolls-Royce, you've got to be sat in the back of them, no? They're, they're oh, no. Yeah, but I'm like a... I'm like a real GT driver. I love okay. the long cruise. So okay. driving down to Monaco, just cruising and enjoying the music and everything that you're seeing. I love driving from, from place to place. That's why I love road trips because you see so much of a country. And when you fly somewhere, you obviously like take off and then land and then go to a hotel and never really mm. get to see. I've driven through Italy and Switzerland and Austria, Germany, and there's some amazing parts to all of those countries. I just don't think I would have seen if I was going on holiday and flying there. Yeah. So, but, but I love being behind the wheel. So I actually think in another life, um, I'd be like an ice road trucker or whatever. So that I can just be <laughs> cruising along in complete comfort. Sure. Doing like, I would, ice road truckers there, they get into some fairly tedious uh, situations. Quite scary yeah. sometimes. God, yeah, God, yeah, God, yeah. God, yeah. God, for that, Jesus. Yeah. Um, I'd, like, I'd love to just do like long haul, long haul drives. Maybe I should be a pilot. That'd probably be a bit more exciting, wouldn't it? Long haul pilot. Uh, yeah. You know, go back to pilot school if you need uh, that. That's quite intense as well. Um, I'll, I'll hand over to Tim to do the final question. Then so go on, Tim. Our final question for you before we let you get on with your day: What are you scared of? Is it too? Is it too broad to say artificial intelligence? Ooh, no, another <laughs> Ooh, no, not at all. We've not had that one before. Um, what is it about AI? You're scared that how much they know, how much they can pick up on us. I actually, I actually think. Um, there's, a, there's, there's fundamentally an element where it's beneficial um, because humans make errors. Um, but I've, I've probably seen too many conspiracy documentaries. I've probably seen too much where there are too many people out there that are over-engineering AI to try and supersede the human race. I mean, let's be honest, like we're not doing a very good job of looking after the planet. So 
maybe they maybe they are to supersede us. But at the same time, I come down to an experience that I had in the Tesla where um, I was only in cruise control. It was like a, a variable dishtronic cruise control. I wasn't even an autopilot. Um, but the car thought a bridge was a lorry in the road and slammed on the brakes on the M1 from about 80 mile an hour down to 50 in about 0.6 seconds. Oh, my God. Um, and I fed, I fed it back to Tesla and they kind of looked into the data in the car and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we can see the emergency stop. It was a, a blah, 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 G, emergency stop. And I said, yeah, yeah, because it was a bridge. Like, come on, like, how is the car not recognizing that it's a bridge rather than anything else? Because it was so frustrating and also quite terrifying. Thankfully, there was no one behind us. Um, and they're like, well, yeah, the thing with the Teslas is they're, they're always learning from the drivers. And I'm thinking, well, can you give me one once it's learned, <laughs> please? Yeah, <geez. laughs> I don't want to be the person who's teaching it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the only reason why it stopped breaking at 50 is because that the, the, it was my reaction time to get on the accelerator that cancelled the stop. But it was right, terrifying. Right. But it was terrifying. So, yeah. That is terrifying. I think that that is a justified fear then. Uh, well, look, Paul, we've taken up more than enough of your time this morning. A massive thank you for, for giving up your time and coming onto the show. It's been absolutely brilliant to chat oh, mate, with you. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. I love the format of the podcast because on YouTube you get to, well, I basically have to produce a, an edited version of my day, which normally constitutes all of the best parts in 12 to 15 minutes. But a podcast, you get just to have a conversation you can just talk about anything that's why we love it and that's why we do it well look Paul Wallace from Supercars of London thank you so much for coming onto the Motormouth podcast thank you for having me good to see you guys before you go one final reminder to check out Rodin Cars forget a one-off experience with Rodin and the Rodin FZ you can become and live the life of an elite performance driver with your very own Rodin FZ you'll be able to drive a truly remarkable supercar hunt down lap time and search for ultimate performance a solo cockpit but never alone with Rodin's incredible after sale partnership you'll be looked after on and off track with an official formula racing team running and maintaining your vehicle and as an exclusive owner of a Rodin car you'll get exclusive access to their circuit in New Zealand so what are you waiting for to find out how you can own the F1 lifestyle find the perfect racing line enjoy the thrill of a roaring engine and experience the purity of driving visit rodin-cars.com thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast do make sure you give us a follow on our socials twitter at motormouth underscore instagram at motormouth underscore official and facebook just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth podcast. 